You're listening to Mind Your Uterus Podcast by Safe to Choose. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to another glorious episode of the Mind Your Uterus Podcast brought to you by Safe to Choose. As you already know, I'm Marie, your host, and today I will take you to Southeast Asia, where we will discuss the abortion landscape and how people in that region are working towards increasing accessibility and fighting for the rights of women. Joining me today is Samara. She is a representative of the She Decides movement. And just a bit of background on the She Decides movement. It is a magnanimous movement, a magnanimous force that is fighting for a world where every girl and woman can decide what to do with her body, with her life and with her future. You're going to hear a lot more about the work that Samara specifically does in Southeast Asia. But I think the big takeaway for this specific episode is really um, championing the power of grassroots action and taking change making from the perspective of not deciding what is best for people, but rather listening to what they have to say, listening to how they envision change manifesting in their very communities and using that as a guiding force to transforming the landscapes in this case, the abortion landscape in Southeast Asia. Welcome, Samara, and thank you so much for joining us today. So could you just give the audience um, a brief introduction of who you are, what work you do, and how you came about doing this type of work? Sure. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, Mm -hmm. My name is Samara. I am a feminist activist, a writer, and a mother of a sassy seven-year-old girl. Currently, I work at She Decides, which is a global political movement working on bodily autonomy and sexual reproductive health rights with youth at the center of all our work. I am working here as the regional movement builder for the Asia region, and I am also the coordinator of Bonnishika, which is a voluntary organization in Bangladesh, which uses arts and theater to spark conversations, to unlearn gender as we know it. I am also part of Rage Against Rape, which is an intergenerational feminist coalition Mm -hmm. in Bangladesh working to end rape culture. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today um, on the Mind Your Uterus podcast. Our focus today is really going to be trying to understand the abortion context in South Asia. Um, And I think there's many ways in which we can understand the context. There's the legislation, there's also the sociocultural factors, there's the stigma, so on and so forth. So just to help the audience kind of have an understanding before we start diving into what we hope the context will look like in the future, how, how would you describe the socio-cultural context in which abortions exist in Asia and particularly South Asia? Right. So in Asia and particularly in South mm-hmm. Asia, mm-hmm. bodily autonomy, especially for women, is an issue that is hardly discussed apart from particular segments in society. And, and that's the same for abortion. It's a taboo. It's not talked about openly. And there is so much of judgment on women who get an abortion that it's it, it just mm-hmm, makes mm-hmm. things so much more difficult. Yeah, no, I can I can clearly relate to that. I spent two years in India, actually. Um, and I think one thing that was very similar to me when it came to the context there and the context here in my home country in Zimbabwe was just the fact that it's taboo for women to even discuss bodily autonomy and then by extension of that we have um, really restrictive legislation but then also really restrictive cultural settings whereby you know women's bodies are just perceived as something that is to be kind of 
controlled or just not in the control of themselves, but rather just a product that can be, you know, have things done to it within the specific context. So I completely understand that. Um, but then just building off of the social cultural context, could you give us a bit more information about the legislative framework that has come about as a result of the social cultural context in Asia? Sure. So I just wanted to start by saying that abortion laws vary largely in different parts of Asia. Mm. So for example, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. abortion is legal in South Korea, but in most parts of Asia, okay. especially South Asia, it still remains mm -hmm. illegal largely. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the Philippines, for example, abortion has been banned entirely for over a century. The law mandates okay, okay. prison terms of up to six years mm -hmm. for people who have abortions and for anyone who assists in the procedure. In, in practice, abortion is allowed in cases where mm -hmm. the pregnant person's life is at risk, but no mm -hmm. law okay. explicitly states that. In Nepal, mm -hmm. it was legalized in 2002 in response to advocacy efforts that emphasized the high rates of maternal morbidity and mortality attributed to unsafe mm -hmm. abortions. So the law permits abortions with the consent of the pregnant mm -hmm. woman for an, any indication up to 12 weeks gestation mm -hmm. and up to 18 weeks gestation in cases of rape mm -hmm. and incest. Abortion is legal at any gestational age if a medical practitioner declares that a woman's mental or physical health is at risk or that the fetus is deformed. In cases of women who are younger than 16 or are not mentally competent, consent of the woman's nearest relatives or immediate guardian is required. If we just look at Bangladeshi law for a bit, Bangladesh permits a mm, woman's mm -hmm. menstrual regulation, mm -hmm. quote unquote, menstrual regulation for up to mm -hmm. 12 weeks of pregnancy. The method of vacuum aspirations mm -hmm. if a woman missed her period. This was introduced as part of the government's family planning program and not considered mm. as an abortive measure. It may be regarded as a euphemism mm, for okay. early pregnancy termination. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, I'm particularly interested with the Bangladeshi way of um, framing that because um, it's not like abortion is legal, which is quite interesting because people will go around and say that and I think a lot of people will then use menstrual regulation because maybe they're not as comfortable with putting out policy um, you know on Bangladesh's back that says abortion is legal so I'm interested to know do you know a bit about how that legislation came about the menstrual regulation like is there a history of that there there definitely is a history of that so the history mm -hmm. of abortions in the mm -hmm. region it goes back to colonial times right so mm -hmm. drawing from published judgments, unpublished case records, forensic toxicology reports and treatises on Indian medical jurisprudence suggests that anti-abortion law was generally enforced in colonial India only when women died mm -hmm. as a result of illegal abortions. And this approach was contrary mm -hmm. to the Indian penal code, which criminalized most abortions, even mm -hmm. when the woman survived. So the pattern was a continuation of the pre-IPC, mm -hmm, so the mm -hmm. Indian Penal Code approach in India, which proposes as contributing factors such as challenges in detection, the social movement for the protection of Hindi, Hindu widows, colonial anxieties about false allegations of abortion among South Asians, and the common phenomenon of imperial British husbands and wives living apart and physicians' desire to protect um, the doctor-patient confidentiality. 
And there were two cases around that time involving abortion, which were the Whitehacker Templeton case from Hyderabad, in which a British woman mm. died following an abortion, and the Parsi matrimonial case mm -hmm. of T versus T from Bombay, in which a Zoroastrian woman alleged that her pharmacist husband had forced her to terminate three pregnancies mm. by ingesting drugs. So the legislation in Asia around abortion or other such issues concerning women's bodies for that matter is based on mm. colonial norms and values mm. which are enshrined in legislation that hasn't been updated mm -hmm. for close to a century really. And that means that while socially we've progressed as communities mm -hmm. and hold different values to those of our grandparents and great-grandparents, we're still governed mm -hmm. by many of the same laws, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to mm -hmm. abortion and women's bodily autonomy. And things are further complicated, if you think about it, by the phenomenon of ah, the preference mm -hmm. of a son mm -hmm. in many countries of South Asia, which leads to sex-selective mm -hmm. sex abortions, or in mm -hmm. other words, abortion of the girl child. And this really mm. further complicates the fight for abortion rights. So, I mean, how do you see... That's something that's very, um, like you said, unique, I think, to Asia. Um, because a lot of people will maybe weaponize the fact that people have these sex-selective abortions um, as a way to say we must not have abortions at all. So mm. how do you perceive kind of advocacy for... Um, access to abortions in the context of Asia, um, given these very specific contextual factors that are at play in their day-to-day -day lives. Right. So when we talk about advocacy, unfortunately, I think it becomes mm. about a group of powerful people, usually exclusively men, mm. sitting in a room and making decisions together with other powerful people mm. about those who are not present in the room, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm a big believer of the power of the people, yeah. the citizens, mm -hmm. and of them making and taking power in their own hands. So when activists, feminists get together and organize and mobilize within their communities, mm. when they take to the streets, strategize, express and write, mm -hmm. both online and offline, when they work towards socializing and together work with legislatives and policymakers, mm -hmm. change is bound to happen. Mm -hmm. it, has, it has worked for abortion rights in many countries. Mm -hmm. It has worked for rape law reform in others. Mm -hmm. And so the power of the people to me is indispensable. Mm -hmm. the, the power of organizing and movement building is a force to reckon with. And to me, all it takes is a group of people to say enough is enough. We're no longer putting up with this injustice mm -hmm. and we will ask for what is ours. Yeah, yeah. no, I 100% agree with that. I think grassroots and community-based action is the only, I think not the only, but one of the most effective ways of changing things because when people feel as though they have something to lose or they have something at stake in the grand scheme of changing things i think they're more passionate and more charged to kind of fight till the end for whatever change they're fighting for so i definitely agree with that um what are some things that you have done yourself or she decides is engaging and that could give us maybe a bit of an example of what this kind of advocacy this grassroots community-based action looks like in the context of south asia um so in the case of she decides what we work on particularly is organizing mm -hmm. and mobilizing mm -hmm. So if it is one leader or two leaders in a community mm -hmm. who want to organize and get other people on board, 
they they call out, they stand up for what they feel that the injustice mm-hmm. is that they want to work towards and change. Okay. And so that that doesn't remain like a tokenistic way of working and including the youth, right? So they say, for example, that they want to work on consent or they want to work on bodily autonomy. Yeah. And then they call on others like mm. them who want to join their constituency ah, and come together and work together. And that could be um, changing narratives, that could be building new narratives, or changing the power dynamics that exist in society at Mm -hmm. large, or they could be working particularly to change legislations. Mm -hmm. It's really up to them Mm -hmm. what they want Mm -hmm. to do. But but as she decides, what we try and encourage Mm -hmm. is to take sort of a different route Mm -hmm. than what is like, you know, the usual NGO Mm -hmm. way of working Mm -hmm. and advocating for causes to take matter in their own Mm -hmm. hands and really call on other organizers who are thinking of the same issues that need to be addressed, like these people. And so they form a constituency together. No, I really like that model. I think it's really intelligent because it takes away from this idea that you know you go into a community you know what's best for them and then you do whatever needs to be done to change things and you kind of instead say who wants to join me this is what i'm passionate Mm -hmm. about and people are then empowered to come and make a difference as opposed to you walking around saying like i empowered them you know so i think it really it it shifts power dynamics and i think that's really effective in having people really believe that they Mm -hmm. can they have the ability as a civilian a day-to-day civilian to really enact change so what are some strategies that you have worked uh, that have worked well with the work that you do with she decides and what are your larger takeaways in the grand scheme of it all um so for me i think small steps to start with right so one needs Mm. to read coherently and write about abortion Mm -hmm. rights in our own countries and know and believe Mm -hmm. why this is a basic right so You Mm -hmm. can read up also on good examples of strategies that have worked around the globe in order to legalize abortion, because there are so many countries where political organizing has worked to change narratives around abortion and Mm -hmm. use the power of the people Mm -hmm. to pressure policymakers towards change. One can hear and collect stories of women around us who have had to suffer because of the lack of information and services on abortion. And the stories are all out there, Mm -hmm. right? One just needs to get creative, maybe use music Mm -hmm. and arts and theater Mm -hmm. and our own bodies to create these new narratives. On a more personal note, I think we can also collect information of services that are available around us so that the next time someone asks us, we know where to direct them Mm. to. It's these small and big acts of holding each other and holding our ground and keeping at it that makes us strong. And that to me is activism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. I think that really resonates with the work that we do at Safe to Choose as well, um, where we just... A lot of the times I think when people think of change or everything, they'll look at the end goal, which is kind of the big picture and which is great to keep you motivated and keep you going. But sometimes people lose sight of the very small acts that lead to that point. And so I think it's really important that we highlight that because often when you think, okay, this is where we want to be, you can get overwhelmed. But in what you've just said is the fact that, you know, it's these small things and creating networks and so that the next time something happens, you know, there's resources for people and that allows whatever change 
change making to happen to grow bigger and bigger and bigger so 100% I think that's really profound of you to bring up and that's really effective in change making so recently in India they have data they've updated their abortion law do you think um, in other South Asian countries some, things like this would happen? Why or why not? What do you think the legislative framework is going to look like for South Asia in the upcoming years? So even when we discuss the case of India, you will notice that we're still using words like updated, right? And so abortion mm. is still not really legalized. And it also varies mm. from state to state mm. in India. Again, mm -hmm. even if it is legalized, there's still the implementation of the law, which is not the same as having mm -hmm. a, having mm -hmm. a law. Like it's not exactly. just about having the law; it's also about implementing it. And also, even even then, access to services and information still remains an issue. Mm -hmm. Not mm -hmm. to mention mm -hmm. the taboos and stigmas associated with it. I believe that abortion should be legalized mm -hmm. all over the world, that it should be the woman's choice entirely, period. Like, there's, there's yeah. not really mm -hmm. much to discuss on that. And uh, until that happens, we just have to keep pushing for it and work together to make bodily autonomy mm -hmm. and rights accessible mm -hmm. to one and all. No, for sure. I think hopefully uh, we will get to that point um, and hopefully in starting these conversations that we're having like this or any other conversations we're having, we're at least highlighting the fact that abortion in many, many ways, I think in all ways, is healthcare um, and it needs to be to the choice of the women because um, no one else is asking people to debate or discuss about other healthcare decisions that people have to make and women should have access to making a decision about their healthcare and that in turn means decisions about whether or not they want to carry it child to term so fully hoping that we can get to that point in the future um how can people who are kind of engaging in activism um that seeks to improve abortion um access in your region go about doing it like how can they start to do that work um i know you've got got experience with she decides but maybe you can just give a grand kind of perspective of what it looks like to begin to engage in this activism there i think in terms of activism and i spoke about that briefly already i think it's to start with, it's about finding your people. So find the people who are passionate about change as, as much as you are. Mm. And find people who work in different sectors and different spheres, mm. right? So you need, to, you need to find your artists, you need to find your influencers, mm. you need to find, find your musicians and people who write poetry and to engage in different ways and then collectively working towards change so that legislatives and laws and people making those mm -hmm. decisions actually hear about what mm -hmm. you have to say. Um, it's about, I think it's about also approaching things in a bit of a different way. As mm -hmm. I've been saying, it's been up to this point more focused on advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, but we, if we actually think about collective change and how that has happened in the past on anything in relation to bodily mm -hmm. autonomy. It's always been mass people, it's been civilians, it's been, you know, the people next door to us who have called for change and who've been able to make decision makers hear about what needs to change because it was coming, it was coming from those regular people who are affected by it every day. And even, even amongst um, legislators or lawmakers, there are going to be people who are mm. your people. We also need to find them and mm -hmm. engage with them first yeah. and foremost. No, I like that you started off by saying, um, find your people, 
because um, we, when I'm talking to different people on this podcast or just in our work, one thing that often comes up is you sometimes feel isolated when you're advocating or trying to push for legislative change um, for something that is such a kind of heated conversation. Um, and then you end up feeling like it's just you, you're by yourself, and that can be very demotivating. Exactly. So I really like that you said to start off, you know, find your people and then to build on that, find people in different sectors because um, when you kind of just find people who may be on the same sector as you, same field as you, that's well and good. I think there's power in numbers, but I think we have a lot more strength when we have different perspectives from people of different fields and just different walks of life, because then I think more people are able to relate and say, okay, like I think this person maybe I resonate with and they're saying this, maybe I should take some time to also read on this or learn about it. And that that's how we kind of build that um, collective consciousness and we can kind of change things built off of that but apart from kind of the legislative side how can we then address our own internal biases because like I've mentioned I think a lot of the times people maybe have a hurdle with confronting their own internal biases and that's maybe what stops them from joining certain movements or rethinking the way they perceive certain ideas or legislative practices how can we um, kind of confront our internal biases when we're advocating for change right so whether it is abortion or rights of marginalized communities the the reason that these biases are internalized is because it benefits someone right and it's usually it's usually men in positions of power and and what they're privileged from is mm. controlling women's bodies um I think the power dynamics mm, need to be acknowledged mm -hmm, mm -hmm. first and foremost, and then mm. they need to be addressed. Biases, whether it is to do with one's gender or race or religion, can only be worked with when those in positions of power are able to mm -hmm. let go of their privilege. And mm -hmm. that's not easy. This requires years and years of work, but I'm hopeful. I think... Um, I think change is around the corner, waiting for us mm -hmm. to shape it and mold it in a way that works for all, for the marginalized and the underprivileged communities, for you and mm -hmm. us and them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like it's a it's a power thing. And I think in people need to first understand that power dynamics exist everywhere and they're constantly shifting. So um, we are all going to be called upon to assess our power in certain situations and let go of that. Um, I think what helps for me is understanding that that letting go is not going to just benefit other people but it's also going to benefit me in ways beyond what I can perceive right now because of this positionality that I'm in that's restricting my perspective and everything so for sure I think we have to just call upon ourselves to assess that it's not easy but it's very much necessary um, I don't know if you have any passing words for um, the audience um, this was such a wonderful conversation thank you so much um, and I think it'll give people just some ideas of how they can mobilize and things like that especially within the context of South Asia but I don't know if you have any parting words for us no I don't I just believe that um, the personal is very much political and so think what we do with mm -hmm. our bodies, um, how we shape our narratives, our own narratives, that adds on to these pol political discussions and organizing that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So I think what what I want to say is that everything that we, that we do and think mm -hmm. and feel mm -hmm. and experience bodily for women, mm -hmm. all of it matters. Yeah, 100%. And that's 
such a good um, perspective from just feminist um, thought that, you know, the personal is very much political. So we have to embody that all the time. Samara, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I'm sure the listeners are going to be so glad to hear your perspective and just hear your voice. Um, again, from Safe to Choose and the Mind Your Uterus podcast. Thank you, Marie. We thank, thank you for, you for joining me. us today. Um, and to everyone, thank you for listening and join us next week for another episode. SafeToChoose.org supports women who need options on safe abortion from wherever they are. We offer multilingual online counseling and provide information on all our platforms to demystify safe abortion. And we connect women who want an abortion with pills or a surgical abortion with the right information and when needed refer them to trusted, trained and pro-choice healthcare providers. We work with medical doctors and experts in the field of public health to give women the best support and care to enable them to make the best decision for themselves. Do you know what it takes to have great sex? It's simple. Contraceptives. Visit findmymethod.org to learn how you can protect yourself during sex. Because safe sex is the best sex. How to Use is an online resource that aims to equip you with the information needed to safely navigate medical abortions. Here are four reasons why I think you should visit our website today. You can translate the site into 27 languages. You can travel across 49 country profiles to better understand their abortion laws and process. We offer free certified online courses on medical abortions. And you can chat with Ali, the abortion support chatbot who's available 24-7 to answer all your questions.